0: This episode is brought to you exclusively by Goo Energy Labs. Goo hydration tabs are quick and convenient hydration for your active lifestyle with just 10 calories per serving. Save 25% on all Goo orders of $50 or more with code AMR25 at gooenergy.com. Please stick around to the end of this episode to listen to the latest miles of books, my monthly conversation with Coach Liz Waterstrott about the nonfiction books she's been reading and the insight and advice she's learned from them. Welcome to Another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I am joined today by Liz Waterstrot. Hello, Liz. Hi, Sarah. You are fresh off a race, are you not? I am, yes. Yeah. Oh, the enthusiasm and excitement in your voice, I can
1: hear it. <laughs> oh, you know, I just
0: love talking about me. I do not. <laughs> All right, well, we want to hear how did it go in Waco?
1: Waco, Waco was a surprisingly charming little Texas town. Mm -hmm. I just want to start with that. If you're looking for a destination, I would I would put Waco up there, along with maybe San Francisco, L.A. It was cute though. (laughs) It was cute. Uh, The race itself was was good. I ended up second in my age group. Mm -hmm. It was not my fastest. Mm -hmm. I think I can do better. Mm-hmm. I think we all cross the finish line with that feeling, which is what keeps bringing us back to racing. Mm-hmm. But I really enjoyed the course; it was beautiful along the, I think it's called the Brazos River. So it was just not river bluffs and mm. fall colors. Mm. And seventy point three or entire Ironman? Yes. Yeah. Oh no my my entire Ironman days are long past me. Oh. This was a half Ironman, oh. so that was that was long enough. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> I didn't know it so you don't think you'll ever do a full iron man again, oh goodness no i I don't know, I don't think so i think mm. i I did one as as well as I could do it, maybe mm-hmm. uh eight or nine years ago and and I'm good to let that one rest, but you know never say never mm-hmm. um but i'm I'm pretty much saying never <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, we go we go was nice it was very very windy, and being from Oof. Chicago area, I'm used to winds, but mm-hmm. this, this was something else. Ooh. So yeah. Oh my goodness. And where was the swim in the river? It was in, it was in that river. I really enjoyed the swim. Oh, it, was good. Point, it was point to point, which you know, means you start at one point and you finish down the river mm-hmm. 1.2 miles later, the mm-hmm. bike was in uh, what, what I would call probably just your typical Texas uh, farm field type of roads. Mm-hmm. And then the run actually kind of wound itself along the riverfront. And then we did a, a whole little stretch in the Baylor University parking lot. And let me tell you, <laughs> they have their porta potty and tailgating game. It is spot on there. <laughs> it's It was pretty incredible. I mean, it, it was like an entire like city in their parking lot with all these porta potties and pop-up tents. It's amazing. For, for the race,
0: it was not, or did there happen no. to be a, a Baylor football game going on?
1: No, I'm just imagining. I mean, this this football stadium. I know my friend told me that football is a very big deal in Texas. So this (laughs) your friend told you you've never heard that Uh, yourself. I, I, (laughs) I, she confirmed what I already knew, I suppose. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. this football stadium was incredible. It was beautiful, and it just looked like they took their tailgating very seriously down there. Mm.
0: All right. All yeah. right. Well, nice. <laughs> um, but a parking lot, you don't, that's otherwise, well, it's that's, not a real selling point. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's always funny how they try to, you know, 13.1 miles mm-hmm. when you don't want to venture too far from the race site. I always find it interesting how they get these little out and backs. And it's like, we're going to go to this end of the parking lot. And then we're going to go along the sidewalk that, that is parallel to the parking lot. It's like, come on, guys. Come on. We can do better than this. But I get it.
0: Wow. Wow. So, well, all right. Well, that sounds like a fun weekend. I was up in Seattle at um, with my husband, Jack, for our younger daughter's parents weekend at Seattle University. And that was a lot of good fun. And I did some good running while I was up there because I have a quarter marathon to do on November 5th as part of our retreat on Hilton Head Island. So the terrain was quite different because I always forget how incredibly hilly Seattle is. It just, oh my goodness. So, wow had several interesting encounters, including, so uh, we we're staying at an Airbnb and we were kind of near Lake Washington, which is a very large lake there. And so, you know, you look at the map and you think, oh, it's really close. And oh no, you have to, you know, basically rappel down a mountainside to get there. <laughs> and so I met a woman who had just come up a set of stairs because they have all these beautiful private or actually public access stairways there. And I said to her, I said, is there a running trail near here? I'm hoping to get down to Lake Washington. She's like, oh, let me show you. It was like she took me from base camp two on Everest down to base camp one. And it was just, (laughs) it was just, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Now you have to go all the way back. She's like, it's fine. It'll be more great cool down. Like, oh, wow. You are a really, really nice, generous person. (laughs) (laughs) So she showed me how to get down to Lake Washington and I was going to run seven miles. So, you know, just an out and back. And at one point I stopped along the pathway to change what I was listening to. And I, on the entire run, I saw maybe 30 other runners. And, but as I'm changing my podcast, this woman goes by and goes, Sarah. And it was this woman I know from Portland, Andrea, who was in Seattle for her son's parents weekend at UW. And so I was like, oh my gosh, what are you doing here in Portland, in Seattle? You know, like, why are we both here in Seattle? So we got to talking and within, I would say the first two or three minutes, I don't know why, but she was like, oh my gosh, I have so much money sunk in concert tickets. And so she names off one that she has. And then she says, oh, and we have these four Olivia Rodrigo tickets. I'm like, oh my gosh, you got Olivia Rodrigo tickets, which I was shut out of them because I... uh, I, you know who Olivia, please tell me you know who Olivia Rodrigo is, Liz. She Driver's had, License,
1: uh, yeah, Vampire yeah. is the
0: current song. Mm.
1: Not my favorite artist, but okay. yes, I know who she is.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I adore her. So I was Ticketmaster verified, you know, I was supposed to get a code and no, I was waitlisted for the tickets here in Portland. And by the time I got let into the queue, the only tickets left were... $850 and up. And I'm like, Nope. Mm. uh-uh. I paid a lot of money for my Taylor Swift ticket. I do not love Olivia as much as I love Taylor. So I just let that, you know, train pull out of my, my station in the mind, even though I had gotten Daphne to agree to go with me, which I was excited about. And the concerts next summer, I'm like, Oh my gosh, how'd you get them? Da, da, da. She's like, Oh, we bought four and now we're really regretting it. And I'm like, oh, well, I would totally <laughs> buy two tickets off of you. So, yes, indeed, she is selling me two of her tickets for way less than they are selling on StubHub and other secondhand places. And I'm like, I love the randomness, not only of running into her, but that the topic came up in the few minutes we were talking. Yeah. (laughs) So, And she's a a mother runner I have known for an eternity. She used to test shoes for me back when I was the shoe editor for Shape Magazine. So it was definitely divine providence at work. That's what I have to say. Yeah.
1: So when is the concert?
0: (laughs) Oh, August 10th of next year. (laughs) Oh, oh, wow. Wow.
1: Yes. My goodness. I thought it was bad enough to sign up for a race that far in advance. Now you have to know that you're going to a concert. What if you decide what if she comes out with really bad music between now and then and (laughs) you're You're like, no, (laughs) no, you know, like there's like, like an album you just don't like from an artist yes
0: yes no she just came out with her sophomore album and so she will not be having any i mean maybe she'll release one more song before the tour which i even doubt that so no her set list is probably baked already we just (laughs) don't know (laughs) but i'm excited and daphne's very excited for it so and my husband when i was telling him i'm like oh my gosh like what a great deal like on these tickets he's like how much were they? And I told him he look on his face was like, you think that's a bargain? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, dude, compared to what they're going for on StubHub, this is basically buy one, get one. All right. And I will not tell you pickleball stories. I have many, but I I think I'll wait to share them with Dimity on the next episode of Answers. So uh.
1: just keep me on the edge like that.
0: (laughs) Maybe I'll send you a text that I sent to some of my friends about the games that happened last night. All right. So today we are going to be talking about personal excellence and not being sabotaged by what you believe others think of you. And the impetus for this discussion is the upcoming publication of a book called The First Rule of Mastery. Stop Worrying About What People Think of You by Michael Gervais, PhD, and Coach Liz's profound enjoyment of the book and Dr. Gervais's work in general, Dr. Michael Gervais is the founder of Finding Mastery, a high performance psychology consulting agency. Dr. Michael is recognized as a leading expert on the relationship between the mind and human performance. He's also the host of the very popular podcast called Finding Mastery. So Liz, before Dr. Gervais joins us, I want to know what is it about his work that resonates so strongly with you?
1: His work is it's forged from his own personal experience as well as his work with those seeking high performance in so many different domains. Mm. He used to work closely with the Seattle Seahawks and Pete Carroll. He's worked closely with the guy who tried to free dive, something like that from a very high. Yeah. So people who are seeking, you know, the, the razor's edge of performance in those risky situations where a lot is on the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just—it's very powerful. It's very inspiring, but also it's very practical. The mm-hmm. way that he presents things and his approach. So, really, I'm—I'm I'm just beside myself that we get the opportunity to talk with him and spend, even if it's just 15 minutes, learning from him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, I know you've been quite excited for this huh? recording. Huh? <laughs> there's the enthusiasm we were looking to, for earlier
1: I'm, there i'm gonna have to sit on my hands today
0: <laughs> like, you got a fangirl
1: yeah yeah i'm gonna make so many movements it's gonna make barry's job really hard with the editing be like liz stop clinking the silverware what are you doing
0: the ghost silverware <laughs> well thank you dr gervais for joining us we're delighted to have you
2: Oh, I'm really excited to be here as well. So thank you for including me.
1: The subtitle of your new book is Stop Worrying About What People Think About You. To that end, would you tell folks what FOPO is? Can you tell us why the antidote to FOPO is not caring less about what other people think?
2: Absolutely. So FOPO, again, stands for fear of people's opinions, is this slippery little operating system that many of us are working from. And I'll start before I give a formal definition, I'll just start with like the way it kind of shows up, I think, in most of our lives is FOPO is checking your phone. So you appear busy or in demand. It is laughing at a joke that you don't find funny. It's pretending to know a song or a movie that everybody's talking about, even though you haven't watched it. It's, um, you know, maybe holding a drink at a social gathering even though you don't want to drink alcohol you're just holding one not to be the odd one out so fopo shows up in a lot of ways and essentially what fopo is it's it's this excessive worry about what they might be thinking of you and it's a filter to try to be included to belong to not be rejected this high, we have a heightened very sensitive brain drive to be accepted and to have this fear, the sensitivity of being rejected. And so that's what FOPO is. And there's a couple components to it. And we can get into that later, but that's essentially what it is.
0: Mm, mm. So, time and time again, we hear from women who run several times a week that they don't consider themselves a runner. And so, I think this is often because they are seeing themselves through the lenses. Of of how other people are looking at them. And so how can we discharge the power other people's opinions have over
2: us? Well, I think the first case is to recognize that some opinions do matter a lot. And so this is not a, a calling to say, don't think about other people or don't be aware of other people's opinions. This is a calling to be aware of this saturation or this excessive worry and this conforming and contorting of oneself to be accepted by others. So the, the question is like, um, can you sharpen the question for me one more time so that I can drill right in and answer it?
0: Yeah. So, so I mean, I guess it is a two-part question that, that for these people who don't see themselves as a runner because they're so busy thinking about what other people think is a runner so that a runner... You know, has legs like a gazelle and wears split shorts and is coming in in the you know top ten of every race and that sort of thing, <laughs> yeah. rather than someone who's you know putting their feet forward, moving in a rhythmic motion several times a, a week and working up a sweat.
2: Mm-hmm. So that there's a two part question, two part answer, right? So that mm-hmm. I think I actually find that relieving and refreshing when somebody doesn't identify with what they do. And so Hmm. I had an aversion as a kid. Um, I had two things as a kid. One was I became really aware as a 16-year-old when I first got my driver's license that I was paying attention to how I saved up for a couple summers, you know, scraping my nickels together to to buy a car. And I love the car. And I was heightened to the, you know, the wanting to look good in my car. And I thought to myself, like, what am I doing? Why do I care what they think of me? This is the only thing I could afford, <laughs> so well, you know I'm, I'm grateful to have a car. And so I, I recognize that was like one of my early moments of fopo. Like I'm afraid of what they're going to think of me, so I'm trying to look a certain way and play it cool. Okay, now go back to the. I'm also around my 16 year old age, where I had this rash. To I'm not a surfer. I grew up surfing, and I would say to people all the time, "No, I surf a lot." but I'm not a surfer. Mm. And I think that that was at the time, I didn't know it. I didn't understand the science. It was a very healthy framing because I I and your your folks that are asking the questions are so much more than the thing that we do. And I think when we collapse our identity on something that we do, it is actually an on-ramp to exasperate FOPO. It's an on-ramp to being a bit more targeted for how well you do something relative to others. And then that becomes part of your identity. And come to find out, there's a name for it. It's called performance-based identity. And a performance-based identity can be really powerful to get you good at something because your identity is wrapped in what you do. And when other people look at you, they see what you do, not who you are. You want them to see what you do. You want them to see how good you do it. You want them to see how good you do it relative to other people. And that's a performance-based identity. And when that happens, there's this mechanism and machinery underneath fueled by anxiety. Don't let them see you be weak or less than or slow or anything other than idyllic because that's who you are. And there are so many problems with that framing. And I understand it. I, I know as an early kid that I said that, I didn't have that, but I slipped into it. I fell to the, we are living in an, a performance-based obsession of our culture. Like how well we do is how we pay the bills. It's how how we fit socially. And it, it's so confusing to know the difference between who I am and what I do. And mm-hmm. well, I think just having this conversation maybe can break off some of the calcium that's been, you know, kind of, Catching up with people, it's like you are so much more than what you do, mm-hmm. and so going from a performance-based identity to a purpose-based identity—that that crosswalk makes all the difference.
1: Mm-hmm. I coach endurance athletes, and one of my athletes was in a cycle cross race, and she was just berating herself during the race, worried about. Uh, the result and what other people would think of her result. So I actually pulled a page from your book, which I read. It's wonderful. Thank you. Uh, And it was exactly that. It was that it's not that you shouldn't care what other people think of you. It's that you should show up well connected to your purpose and stand strong. And this is what I'm here to do. And regardless of the outcome, this is the purpose of me being here. And it kind of ties back to many years ago, I actually went through your Finding Mastery course and I developed, yeah, it's awesome. I developed a personal philosophy and I found that that practice really keeps me grounded in my purpose, no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm out there racing or I'm parenting or I'm coaching, it's this personal philosophy. So can you talk to us more about why having a purpose, having a philosophy is so important and how you might go about doing that?
2: Oh, gosh. Liz, I'm so excited for you. It's real work to get that down and to be really clear with it. How long did it take you?
1: Well, I went through the whole course and I just started sticking post-it notes on my office wall about the words going through the character survey. And once I saw the words that connected most to me, it just, it really just fell into place. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this is it.
2: Okay. Awesome. All right. So you were doing it as you were like taking the course. Okay. Yeah. So I think that a um, couple things, let's be, let's just define what the two are, and then we can walk through a bit of a mechanism to get more clear. First order of business is that it does not need to be written in stone. You do not need to get a neck tattoo of your purpose or your first <laughs> philosophy. Like you don't need to do that. It's a work in progress. You can change it at any time. However, there is, you know, that phrase, clarity is kindness, um, or kindness is, what is it? Kindness is clarity? No.
0: <laughs> Clarity is Clarity kindness, is kindness. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Um,
2: so there's the, there is some kindness to your life when you do get clear on these two anchors, if you will, of your authentic self, all right, so the first one is your personal philosophy, and basically that's a kind of a fancy little phrase for you identifying your core values and you put them into a sentence or two. so a personal philosophy is. It rests on values. and then, But the way that you shape the expression of those values is what your personal philosophy is. Let me give you an example. Uh, Dr. King Jr. and Malcolm X actually had the same value. They had the same type of personal philosophy, which is equality. But the way that they shaped their language and their behaviors around it were markedly different. And so your personal philosophy is the way that you put words and tone to the values that matter most to you. So another way of saying personal philosophy is, let me just ladder for a moment. It rests on your values. And you can go to via.org, valuesinaction.org, and they've got a whole, they've got a, it's free, it's a wonderful little way to get more clear on some of your values. You could go look at what Aristotle and Socrates did for values. You could go look at, you know, what are the top, and, and they had seven different values. You could go look and just do a search, like what are the most common or what is a list of values for humans? And you'll find, you know, a hundred of them. Okay. So the idea is that you get clear on the values that matter most to you, and then you start to put um, some words to it. And that's called the first principle. So the way that you shape those values. And then when you combine all of those together in one or two sentences, Then you have what's called a personal philosophy. And what a personal philosophy does, it is the backstop. It is the guidepost for how you choose your thoughts, your words, and your actions. And people that have their thoughts, words, and actions lined up and are eloquent and are consistent, even in high stress moments, even in pressure packed moments, when they have the ability to line up their thoughts, words, and actions, those end up being very powerful people. And when you take that mechanism and then you're pointing it at something, you're pointing it towards your purpose in life. Oh, my goodness. It's now, now you've got this exponential thing that's taking place. And if you can think about the most dynamic, inspiring, game-changing, world-changing people, they knew their values. They knew their first principles. They could clarify their philosophy in life. And their purpose was very clear. So again, clarity on first principles, Allah, your personal philosophy, and then clarity on your purpose. And you think of Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa. You think of Buddha, Jesus, Confucius, Dr. King, Malcolm. You go down the list and, 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 Amelia Earhart. Like they knew what they were about. That's available to every one of us. But what ends up happening for most of us, we get busy. You know, like we we brag about being busy even, and we don't really go in and do this alone work. Hmm. Nobody can give you your purpose. It has to, there's three components, according to research on purpose. It has to matter to you, personal meaning. It's bigger than you. You can't solve it alone. And the third is that there's a, a future orientation. So it's something you're working toward. And that's really what a purpose is. And then I'll, I'll just kind of round it home. I think it took me two years to get my philosophy down. Hmm. And so, Liz, that's awesome that you got it down in like <laughs> six to eight weeks or something. That is incredible. And then it was it was honest and, and it rang true for me for, oh, I don't know, I'd say probably like 10 years. And then I had a different life event and it really jarred me and it was it a was great learning moment for me. I said, you know what? Hold on. It's a moment for me also to reground and shift, you know, what I'm resting on my personal philosophy. And so it wasn't that the first one was bad. It served me really well. But I, I upgraded. I changed. And I'm not sure I can see a future where it changes it again. But who knows? You know, we don't know how life goes. So anyways, that's a little bit of a tutorial on hmm. philosophy and purpose.
0: Hmm. And given the name of our show, Another Mother Runner, how do you think that purpose and philosophy can be brought into people's athletic life
2: oh it makes it so much easier mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm fortunate to work with world's best across multiple disciplines including running at the olympic level and ultra you know in the world stage and i don't spend a lot of time with folks that aren't close to or at world's best but i know that this what we're talking about holds true because mm-hmm. I see it and I feel it myself and it doesn't matter if I am world's best or not it matters deeply so this is how it shows up for people is that when you're clear on your purpose let's can you pick somebody that is really inspiring to you so we can make it even more real
0: okay. Well, Taylor Swift is the first person that comes to
2: mind. <laughs> Taylor Swift. Okay. So um, this is like a dangerous hot button, isn't it? Like if I don't know enough about, t- do I get like automatically pushed out of the tribe? <laughs> you know, like I'm a Swifty, non-Swifty. I know this is dangerous territory. So let's let's play it out. Okay. Taylor Swift. Um, would you say that she's clear on her purpose? Most
0: assuredly. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Would you say that she's got clarity of the values and how she's going to express those values in her life, her personal philosophy, whether it's written or not. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So she shows up consistently over time. And what ends up, you know, whether it's a low pressure moment or a high pressure moment, like you would bet that she's going to be pretty consistent. And that is the power of just knowing those and knowing that you've got a backstop or bumpers or guideposts or wayfinders. There's lots of ways to visualize what these uh, two principles do. And if you don't have them, so back to the runner, if you don't have them, you end up playing life on other people's terms. What is good, what is not good. Well what's good is living aligned to the values even when it's hard.
1: Yeah.
2: That's what's good. That's how you that's how you demonstrate a sense of like authenticity to yourself. And then if you're aiming towards something, the reason I run is because I want to, I don't know, I want to be healthy for my grandkids. I want to, whatever the purpose is, it's not a goal. It's like, that's a purpose for me. And when purpose is clear, you can deal with much pain.
0: Mm.
2: When purpose is not clear, pain wins. Pain is such a driving motivator. It shapes our thoughts and words and behaviors, and it constricts us sometimes, and it can get us to do amazing things in other ways. But if you're not clear of purpose, pain wins. Okay, and I'm not sure we want to live in a life of pain. We'd like to live more aligned to purpose. So Mm. it's just it's not like there's no shortcuts and there's no hacks to being your very best, to being happy. There are none of those. But when you have these two in place, you end up being more connected to a life of meaning and one that feels organic to you. Mm.
1: Mm. And so then you don't fear other people's opinions because you have established your purpose, you know, it's, it's almost, it's not fear of other people's opinions. It's almost like failure to put together your purpose in a way that really resonates with you and to be driven by that versus overwhelmed by the fear.
2: You nailed it. That is exactly it. So the first rule, the title of the book is first rule of mastery. Mm-hmm. And the first rule is not to stop worrying about what other people think, even though that's the subtitle. The first rule, (laughs) I'll tell you how that happened in in just a moment. The first rule is to work from the inside out, to invest in your psychology,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. to know yourself, to have awareness of how your thoughts and feelings and emotions work. And when when you become a researcher, a student of your thoughts and feelings and emotions, you end up not worrying about other people. You end up tuning to what they might need you end up being clear about what you need and how you're going to shape your thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And so I'm talking about go way upstream because so for so long, me and so many of the world-class athletes I work with and executives is, they just feel whipped around by the world. And we've outsourced our sense of being okay because many of us do have a performance-based identity. We've outsourced our sense of being okay to them, to the approval mm-hmm. of others when we're terrified of being rejected, when you work from the inside out, you get to the signal, and the noise starts to gate away. And the noise is really, you know, the the noise of their opinions of you. And so, again, go back to Taylor Swift. Go back to I'll do Nelson Mandela for just a moment. Yeah, imagine if the if the three of us and Nelson and Taylor were in a conversation, like like we'd be talking about some very predictable things. What do you, What do you think that uh, Taylor, I don't know her purpose well enough. What would we be talking about right now if she was in this conversation? Mm, the power of women. Okay, there you go. And Nelson would be saying, listen, we, there, there's, oh, let's go the power of humans. Let's, let's mm-hmm. say there's a crossover okay. there. I love that. Okay. okay, cool. And so we'd be talking about that if they were here. So I would say the three of us also have equal voices in it. But if we don't know what we're about and what our purpose is, we're just going to default their purpose. We're going to be enrolled in their purpose. And that's okay too, because that can be an amazing way to go through life. But Satya Nadella, one of the great CEOs of our time, the CEO of Microsoft, he has this beautiful insight. And this insight is Microsoft knows their purpose. We are very clear about our purpose. And this is a personal communication to me that he's, he's said that I could share or given permission to be able to share is that I want your, your purpose, the employees of Microsoft, I want Microsoft to be in service of the employee's individual purpose. It's an amazing insight. When you're clear about your purpose, you can help other people is essentially what that's about. And so it's an exciting time for a lot of things, and it's overwhelming in many respects as well. And so when you work from the inside out, you become more grounded in being who you want to be.
0: Hmm. I love that. Well, Dr. Michael, we got to let you go, I know. But thank you so much for enlightening us and, and talking Taylor Swift with us. Always. With <laughs> about it.
2: You never know how these things happen. It's so fun. Yeah, thank you. And you know what I love? I just want to say I love um, people are very active in their lives and you providing the forum to just get some gems and some nuggets and, and also give me the freedom to to muse about things that are important to me. So I just want to say thank you.
0: Oh, well, thank well, you. You're welcome. And thank you. Mm-hmm. Liz, how was it talking to your idol?
1: Taylor Swift, I, I can't believe you didn't bring in Pickleball. <laughs> I don't know a single Pickleball person. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. uh, so, all right. Well, we are you and I are going to continue this conversation. Yes, now. I got to so, switch
1: gears here. Yes, wow. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to give you a break then because it's time to hear from the brands that let us bring you this free content Please support them like they support us. When we come back, Liz and I will talk more about performing at your best. This week at Women's Pickleball League, I shared Goo Swag with my playing partners. Many of the 15 other gals are also runners and soccer players, so I know Goo products can make a meaningful difference in how they feel and perform on and off the court, road, or pitch. I love spreading the word about Goo Energy products, something we've been doing since the early days of AMR, and I am now on a mission to introduce folks to Goo Hydration Tabs. Goo Hydration Tabs are quick and convenient hydration, and they're only 10 calories per serving. Goo hydration tabs are sweetened with stevia and cane sugar. Simply drop a tab into a 16-ounce bottle of water, wait a short while as it dissolves, then drink it before heading out for your workout, and take a bottle with you. I keep a bottle courtside to drink between pickleball games, on the pool deck when I swim laps, and I drink a bottle right before I head out on my morning runs. To replace electrolytes you sweat out during exercise, each tab contains 320 milligrams of sodium and 55 milligrams of potassium to help maintain fluid balance and delay fatigue. There are six refreshing flavors to choose from, including new strawberry hibiscus, which delivers a little kick of caffeine along with the electrolytes, and tropical citrus, a bright blend of pineapple and citrus. Drink up. Save 25% on all goo orders of $50 or more, and that can include hydration tabs, chews, energy gels, whatever you want, with code AMR25 at gooenergy.com. That's code AMR25 at G U E N E R G Y dot com. To save twenty five percent on all goo orders of fifty dollars or more, use code AMR25 at gooenergy.com. All right, so so all right, Liz. So in in our conversation just now, you told Dr. Michael you'd created a personal philosophy, thanks in part to his Finding Mastery course, the post-it notes. That was awesome. So can you share your philosophy with us and maybe cite a few examples of how you put that guiding principle into action?
1: Sure. So my personal philosophy that I came up with is always curious, always learning, always forward. Hmm. It's just those three little phrases. And when I put it all together, It gives me the freedom to go out and put myself in what you might call uh, dangerous situations, you know, stepping up and doing something that maybe I don't think I can do or in a place where maybe I don't think I belong or even when I step up to a start line of a race, Mm-hmm. no matter how confident you are in yourself, there's always this fear of, am I really ready? What if I fail? What does it say about me? What will people think about me? Will people hire me as a coach? So as long as I stay true to this personal philosophy, I go in there knowing that the reason why I'm stepping up is because I'm curious and that no matter what happens along the way, it's all learning. And then win, lose or fail, I just keep moving forward. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just it really clicked with me. You know, I went through that course at a time in my life where I had just gone through something incredibly personal and challenging. Mm -hmm. And I needed to find a way to clear the fog and to Mm. get back to who I was and how to move forward from it. And that, that personal philosophy just really clicked for me. Mm.
0: So when you were standing on that starting line in Waco, uh, maybe standing in that in the 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 river, about to start the swim. So, did you tell yourself your philosophy, your guiding principle?
1: I think about it, yes, before every race. Sometimes during the race, when it gets mm. hard, and you're questioning, "Why am I here? Why am I doing this? I could be at home eating donuts." Or, <laughs> my split was a little bit slower. Are people on the other end watching? Are they judging me? Are they saying, "Oh, there she goes. She just she should just move on." Mm. And. It just takes it back to what's really important to me. And that's all that matters out there.
0: Mm, That's lovely. So Dr. Michael writes about high performers engaging in self-sabotage. And Liz, you're very humble and you're also a high performer.
1: So I'm curious if you engage in any forms of self-sabotage. I do. And I made a list. Here's all the self-sabotage. I get stories in my head about my potential. Uh, I, I fear and I worry about details that don't really matter. I put off thinking about my own goals. I downplay my past success. I don't give myself permission to dream big. And I think those are all some of the ways that I self-sabotage, um, thinking that I'm not good enough or I don't deserve something. Um, so even the most successful people on the outside, they still have that same internal struggle that might lead them to self-sabotage.
0: Uh, you you might hit me over the head, but hearing you talk about that, it's the same way when Taylor Swift talks about, you know, feeling that she's not good enough and that she has, you know, that she looks in the mirror and doesn't see the beautiful, accomplished, skilled person. And I mean, I just, I see you as such a capable, competent, driven athlete and hearing you be candid about how you don't always feel like that is just mind boggling. And I just want to take people like you and Taylor Swift and all the other people who are like that and just shake you by the shoulders and be like, you are, you're crushing it. And mm-hmm. that we all, you know, dream of being as accomplished and, and strong and driven as you all are.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that kind of plays into the whole idea of imposter syndrome. And mm-hmm. I think that. On some level, if you don't have some of these fears and you don't show up with a little bit of imposter syndrome, I would question your, <laughs> I don't know, your sanity a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I feel like nobody shows up 100% sold on themselves. It's, oh. it's a work in progress, you know, See, I or think, I, I think some men do. Maybe I, I, I don't, I don't know that. I mean, that's, that's an interesting, like, is, is it different between men and, and women? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I almost feel like you need, you need to have a little bit of imposter syndrome. It just it shows that you, know, you, you care and mm-hmm. you don't think you're good at everything and there's still room to grow and lots to learn. But it's when those thoughts cause you to freeze or to not take the next step or to hold back, that's when it's problematic. Like if Taylor Swift, here we go again, mm-hmm. did not put out her next album because she was worried that maybe her best days were behind her. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, that self-sabotage, she probably needs to to do some work and, and get beyond that. But I'm sure every time she puts something out there, I'm sure she has a little bit of fear of like when she put out that folklore album. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't you think people people like me were like, Whoa, 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 what are you doing? Where's where's Island Breeze? Where's <laughs> where's Pen Click Got a Space for Your Name or whatever that song is? <laughs> you know, wait, what, uh-huh. why aren't you so angry anymore? <laughs> No judgment. The folk stuff was beautiful, but. Oh, my gosh.
0: And it got so many people through the the pandemic lockdown. And to that, we are eternally grateful. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So in his book, Dr. Michael talks a lot about going from ideas to action. So Liz, you as a coach and as a fan of Dr. Michael's book and podcast, what advice do you give women who have a goal in mind, say running a marathon or doing a 70.3 triathlon, how to make that desire a reality?
1: First, know your why. Hmm. You know, why do you want to do this? It has to be, I would like to say it has to be more than just, well, because my friends are doing it. It's so you know, maybe that's your why, but really your why is community or, you know, sharing an experience with others. So know your why and get really clear on it. And then anytime you find yourself thinking, I don't know if I can do this or gosh, 4:30 in the morning is really early to be getting into the pool. I'd rather sleep in. You just go back to that why and say, but these are the things I'm in pursuit of. In doing this, I want to feel that sense of community. I want that sense of accomplishment. I want to you know show show my my daughter what's possible as a woman. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. okay, let's circle back to imposter syndrome. So for gals standing in the starting corral of a big goal race, maybe the first time they're stepping up to a distance, what can they do in training, either physical or mental, to help them feel like they belong there when race day comes or goal day comes?
1: I think first do the honest preparation to, you know, step up to that start line and feel like I'm about as 90% prepared as I can be. You know, nobody will ever step up to a start line feeling 100% prepared, but just make sure that you commit to doing the training and, you know, following a sustainable schedule and getting yourself as fit as, as possible within the context of your life. Because I do think that preparation goes a long way when we're talking about getting somewhere, feeling confident and ready to take on the challenges of the day. And I think the other thing is just to anticipate that there will be many obstacles. You know, like when I have an athlete, I had a a few doing Ironman California this past weekend. And I said, across this day, there will be three, oh no, and I I used a different word than that, oh no (laughs) moments that you need to anticipate so that when they happen, you won't see them as a cue that you've done something wrong or you're not prepared or you can't handle it. You just have to find a way to, adapt and overcome in those moments and keep moving forward. Um, But just to expect that there will be some struggle and obstacles along the way. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you have any
1: athletes at Kona? Yes, our coaching group had 20 women competing in Kona this year.
0: Wow, that is amazing. Wow. Hats off to you all. And um, are there any standout stories or anecdotes that you've heard? I know it just happened recently as we record this.
1: We coached a para triathlete. So I want everyone mm. to imagine doing Kona with only one arm. Mm. And she made it through the swim. Maybe, maybe for the sake of, for the sake
0: of, let's remind people what Kona is. Oh, entails. okay.
1: So it's a 2.4 mile swim in the ocean. Uh, it's a 112 mile bike. And the place, Kona, is, it's a volcanic island. So it's lava fields. Mm-hmm. It's hot. It's windy. The bike course is definitely not mm-hmm. flat. Uh, mm-hmm. So 112 miles of riding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the marathon is 26.2 miles in those same lava fields. Uh, and it's it's very hot at that point in the day. And it's also somewhat mm-hmm. of a hillier course. So we did have an athlete, para triathlete. She made it through the swim. She made it through the bike, but not in time for the cutoff. Um, mm-hmm. And so really what we had to you know, remind her was that the very fact that she made it that far is a massive inspiration to anyone out there just it It just opens up the the doors of what is possible, you know, one arm um stabilizing yourself on the bike. imagine that you you can't mm-hmm. eat on the bike. you have to get off of the bike every time you need to eat um mm. so she will try to go back again next year, make some changes to her equipment and you know um, prosthetics, but still, every story in Kona whether you get to the finish line or not, is just a remarkable journey. Mm. Mm. So she does race with a prosthetic arm? No, she doesn't. But it's something that we would have to consider for next time around. Yeah.
0: Oh, wow. Hmm. Amazing. So any final thoughts on the first rule of mastery or worrying about what
1: people think or
0: personal purpose? Well, I
1: think like Dr. Michael said, it's, it's not that you don't want to fear or think about what other people think. I mean, we are tribal. We want to be liked. We need to evolutionary for survival. We need to care what other people think about us. We need to fit into the tribe. But there's something about fitting in because you are clear on who you are and what you're about and what you're doing versus you just want to fit in because you think it's the right thing to do or you need the validation from other people. So I would say really... Not that you shouldn't fear other people's opinions, but be so strong in your own opinions and who you are first. That way, when you enter those situations, they're a little bit easier to navigate. Hmm. All right.
0: Well, it is always a pleasure to talk with you, Liz. So thank you very much. And thanks for urging me to have Dr. Michael as a guest. That was very exciting. Yeah.
1: Good. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, we are inching closer to the holidays and colder weather. So why don't you head on over and check out our Mother Runner store. We have cute running hats. We have a really fabulous long sleeve, new long sleeve tech tea that has thumb holes. We always love thumb holes. All our teas have clever phrases on them. There's some mirror mugs in there if you want something new for sipping your tea or coffee. We also have a six word story tea that says I am stronger than I thought. All of these are available at anothermotherrunner.com and then click on the store in our top navigation. Again, anothermotherrunner.com. I hope you know that URL by heart already. So go and check it out, please. Our podcast today was produced in St. Paul, Minnesota by Barry Medore from Fire on the Bluff. And I will not tell you pickleball stories. I have many, but so anyway, so I went last evening to or yesterday I played some hooky. I um went down to play pickleball with these people. And pickleball, you you um rank yourself. And these guys are all Wait,
1: wait. You rank yourself? So these
0: so I consider myself a 3.5. Maybe on good days I'm a 3.75. These guys were solid fours, if not higher. <laughs> I mean, I have a good serve. I don't have a great serve. I was like so and we won the second, Johnny and I won the second game 11-5. I'm
1: just surprised that the youth are picking up on oh, Pickleball. No. Pickleball is not from three to six.
0: It's from six to eight. And they've oh, gotten no. it wrong on the printed oh, itinerary.
1: No. Nah. Now you're in your short shorts. Now I'm in my shorts. Weekends. Yes.
0: Thank you for feeling my pain and understanding that story. I love it.
1: Don't change, Sarah. You be you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh.
0: Thanks for staying with us. This is Miles of Books, our bonus monthly segment that's a quick chat with Liz Waterstrat. You heard her just now in the show. Liz is a coach in our Train Like a Mother Club and, as you know, one of my occasional co-hosts. And in this segment, Coach Liz shares lessons learned from nonfiction books or two that she's recently read. So hello, Liz, again. Hello again, Sarah. Yes, Okay, for the first time, you've chosen two books by the same author. Oh, my goodness. Michael Easter. So first, tell us a bit about him. And I didn't realize that he came from the magazine world.
1: Mm. Yes. Well, Michael Easter is a contributing editor and columnist for Men's Health and Outside Magazine, Mm -hmm. as well as a professor at UNLV, where he teaches journalism with an emphasis on health media. Mm. Okay.
0: All right. So, and we have two Michaels on this show. It's the Michael Show. So, you're going to tell (laughs) us about two of Easter's books The Comfort Crisis, then Scarcity Brain. And Scarcity Brain just debuted last month. So, you wrote in an email to me about those two books. They are both very compelling tales. So, tell us first a bit about his writing and organizational style, and of course, the page count on both books.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, The Comfort Crisis comes in at 284 pages, while Scarcity Brain comes in at 288. So I guess you could say he has a type there. (laughs) Uh, And even though they are a little bit longer than my normal book, Mm -hmm. his style makes both books, like I said, compelling reads and conversation starters. You know, my husband and I, We typically do not discuss the books I read. He just wonders what I'm doing, hiding from the kids all the time. Uh, (laughs) But he was fascinated to hear more about both of these books. And as far as the writing and the organizational style, you know, both of these books follow what I would call the standard hero's journey. Mm -hmm. So that's the character arc in which Easter is the hero. Mm -hmm. He receives a call to action. uh, And I would say perhaps from his discontent with the trends he's observing in society. And then he accepts the call. He rises to action, journeys into the unknown, experiences trials and tribulations, overcomes obstacles, returns home victorious over the dangers of his journey with a whole new identity. So there you go. The hero's <laughs> journey, which accurately describes my every day as a parent. <laughs> and does Brad Pitt star in this hero's journey? or) <laughs> Well, Michael Easter himself is quite good looking, Sarah. Oh, so I don't know that he would need a stand in. Oh, that is. um, I went there.
0: (laughs) Yes, you did. Because I wrote it in the notes in the (laughs) italicized. We're not going to say it out loud. (laughs) Well, I just did. And you can all at me about that. (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) Anyhow. Yes, Yes. In the in the comfort crisis. Mm hmm. Easter goes on this one big journey, uh, whereas I would say Scarcity Brain is a series of mini journeys that follow along a theme. Mm. But in both, he comes full circle. He personally realizes the lessons he explored and then how to navigate his life through his new worldview. Mm. All right. So tell us,
0: please, the premise of the comfort crisis and why it spoke to you.
1: Well, the premise is that we have a deep, I guess, biological need to be challenged, And he believes that our modern life is filled with ways to make our lives easier and comfortable, which conflicts with our need for discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so Easter suggests that this causes many of the mental and physical problems we are suffering from. Um, And he brings up research that has shown that people who have gone through adversity actually have better well-being. Um, So therefore, life gets easier by doing hard things. And I feel like Mm -hmm. this is something we've all heard before. I'm thinking about Steve Magnus' book, Do Hard Things. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, the reason why this spoke to me so much is because I'm an endurance athlete and I coach endurance athletes. Mm -hmm. And at some point you have to wonder, what's the circuitry that motivates us to pay money to suffer (laughs) for (laughs) 13.1 to 140.6 miles. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that some people feel this pull to challenge more than others. And so they seek out, yeah, whether it's an endurance adventure to get them uncomfortable, to be a little more curious and to learn.
0: I tell you, hearing you talk about that, I'm like, Dimity needs to read this book because there's a part of me that's always been convinced that Dimity doesn't feel fully alive unless she is striving for something that's hard. And I say that with great love and respect. And, you know, that when I was doing races more often, I was always like marathon. That was my thing. Just marathon, marathon, marathon. And Dimity was always looking for a new hard challenge. And yeah, I admire that. Yeah. So when I yeah. read what the comfort crisis was about, I immediately thought of the countless contestants on Survivor who say, "This is the most painful thing I've ever done" or "This is the <laughs> toughest thing I've ever done," to which I want to yell back at the TV and sometimes I did. That's because we live in the 21st century with modern medicine. So, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of the reasons I adore swimming in a pond in October wearing just a swimsuit, cap and goggles. It's to feel a little bit uncomfortable and that I don't need a big thrill, you know, I don't need to jump off a building, you know, with a a parachute on my back or climb up to Everest Base Camp, nothing. I just, to me, that going into that pond in my swimsuit and putting my face in that dark, chilly water, that is, that sensory experience does it for me.
1: Yeah, there's so much to be gained from being uncomfortable. And like you said, it doesn't have to be these big you know, scary skydive out of a plane experiences, although maybe every once in a while we all need that. But, you know, even as a coach, it's something that I have to nudge my athletes towards Mm. daily sometimes. Like today is very windy. So it's just convincing people get outside there, ride your bike on a cold day, bundle up and run. Mm -hmm. Don't always look for the easy way because on race day or even in the bigger picture of life, we can't just turn up a the thermostat to get comfortable. Sometimes we have to sit in that discomfort and we need to have the skills on how to get ourselves through it. And you only do that by, like you said, getting uncomfortable, finding those little daily doses, you know, getting used to the cold water when you're out there in just your swimsuit and cap and goggles.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When I lived outside of Boston in my 20s, I loved riding my mountain bike on the roads when there was snow and there was a lot of snow in the Boston area those years that I lived out in Wellesley. And it just, you know, it goes to some of our t-shirts. It just made me feel like a badass. And it yeah. was it was a thrill and that's the type of thrill that I really dig. All right. So one of the seven key tenets in the book is quote, physical challenges and new experiences improve our mental well-being. So Dare I say that I believe that's one of the reasons Pickleball thrills me, Um, you know, and why I'm excited to run that quarter marathon next month. You know, it's just putting myself out there again.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of research that says that, you know, there's an optimal level of stress and arousal and challenge we need Mm. to be at our best. And also, our brain responds best to novelty. So, you know, it really pays to seek fresh challenges and find ways to expand your comfort zone to to be able to thrive, not just in sport, but also life. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you think folks should read this book when their mojo
1: is MIA or when they're kind of stuck in pity party mode? I do. Easter tells this enthralling tale of going on a wild elk hunt Mm. in the harsh Alaskan backcountry for 33 days in the comfort crisis. Mm. So you know, it was one of the, the way he told the story, it was like, you could feel the cold and you could picture the ardor of the task and connect to the sense of him just feeling totally present and alive. And I walked away from that story, just craving some type of meaningful journey. So mm-hmm. yes, if you're stuck, you know, I think sometimes we get lulled into thinking that when you're stuck, you just need someone rah rahing you out. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we need like a, a little bit of a push or a reminder that get out there and try something hard and do something that just kind of like fills your veins with life not just Mm -hmm. a bunch of like hey you can do it Mm -hmm. which many self-help books often fall into that trap Mm, i love that fill your veins with life all right okay so now
0: for easter's new book scarcity brain tell us what it's all about
1: well, scarcity brain, it's, it's both an intriguing and scary story. So the mm. book is born from the truth that our ancestors had to constantly seek food, shelter and resources. So basically more because these things were scarce and hard to find. Our brain is always scanning for scarcity cues and we are wired to feel the threats and fill those holes with more. So in terms of like food and economy and technology, these things that prey on that biological drive, are what drive us towards our bad habits, cravings, and addictions. Hmm. Um, and And he gets into it, he basically says that we fall into these scarcity loops in life where there is opportunity, unpredictable rewards, and quick repeatability. So did you notice what I just described there? That's a slot machine. That's every time you open Instagram, there's opportunity, you might get a like, you can just scroll forever. So, you know, a lot of the things that are now flooding our lives, whether it's social media or, you know, consumerism, it's all meant to tap into this, you know, scarcity loop, um, which is, it's really interesting. It was really interesting to read, but it was also really scary. Yeah, I'd say so. So one
0: premise from Scarcity Brain that jumped out at me, overcoming bad habits usually leads to larger improvements in our life than does adding good new ones. So Coach Liz, what are your thoughts on that?
1: it's absolutely a reasonable position. I mean, adding one fistful of vegetables to your daily diet doesn't really make a difference if you're addicted to drinking, right? Mm -hmm. So you're better off finding the root source of your bad habits, Mm -hmm. finding ways to restructure the environment to avoid the cues to overcome those habits. That's going to be more successful than just adding in a bunch of good stuff. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So did reading scarcity brain prompt you to make any changes in your routine, your workout,
1: your daily life? Well, if anything, it made me think about how gamified our world has become. Mm. I mean, think about the wearables. You know your your garment. Let's say you have a garment, Let's say you have a Coros. Mm-hmm. The Coros will tell you when your run fitness is improving or when you're tired or this and that. Um, And a lot of features in our life have become very focused on sports keeping. Mm-hmm. So tracking our sleep, Instagram, Strava, Duolingo. and we are actually. Mm-hmm. Yes, Duolingo, don't break the streak. Or my my son, Snapchat, oh brought him to tears because he lost his phone privileges. He was brought to tears because he was gonna ruin his Snapchat streak. Oh no. Anyhow, oh. Okay. yeah. Great example of how we are just wired to get caught up in these loops. And then winning mm-hmm. these loops or racking up points and likes mm-hmm. changes the entire activity. Mm-hmm. So there's this quote in the book, and it says those metrics take over our motivations, and we start to lose sight of the real importance of the activity. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you've been traveling anywhere, Mm -hmm. you get people posing and doing this and that, taking pictures, and you just want to say to them, hey, you're here now. Experience it. Just -hmm. just experience it and feel it and stop posing and filtering. Mm -hmm. And I'm as guilty as that as the next person. Mm -hmm. But um, it just reminded me that, you know, don't, don't be the product, don't be the Mm -hmm. player in this game that all these different things are trying to play, Mm -hmm. play with you about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So
0: if a woman runner were to read just one of Easter's books, which one would you suggest?
1: Tough choice. Mm -hmm. I would say if you need help digesting nonfiction, Mm -hmm. scarcity brain is what I would call the perfect blend of research, and story because easter takes you on all these little mini journeys of how he investigated these ideas that he had and the research behind it i also think it's a cautionary tale which i think many mothers parents out there will find enlightening mm. but i will say if you just want a good book to read as you cozy up beside the fireplace this winter i would say comfort crisis is the one mm.
0: all right I love you cozying up with a throw blanket in your lap near a roaring fire with a nonfiction kind of self healthy book. Uh. And a bottle of goo hydration. Excellent. Right? There you go. All right. Well, thank you, Liz. Always a joy talking with you. Thanks, Sarah.